Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Hey, today we are on episode 160, 160, and we got a great guest for you today. We are talking with my buddy, Alan Stein Jr. Now, Alan comes actually from the basketball world. The guy has worked with some of the greatest NBA players on the planet. Seriously, and he, he shares a, a great story here. I'll, I'll touch on it in just a second. But uh, did a lot of, of basketball coaching and training and then got into speaking and then actually recently transitioned from speaking kind of in the basketball world into speaking in the corporate world. So we talk about how he's made that transition, how he transitioned to corporate, how he figured out what his topic was. We talk about how he built his name as a speaker, even in the basketball world, long before he got into the corporate space. We talk about what has worked for him to find and book gigs, why much of his success as a speaker has come from the work that nobody sees. And then also at the end, if you're a basketball fan, you're going to love this. He shares a great story about being part of a workout with Kobe Bryant that you're not going to want to miss. So make sure you stick around for that. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Alan Stein Jr. Jr. from AllenSteinJr.com. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. And today I'm joined by my buddy, Alan Stein Jr., who is a uh, professional speaker, but also uh, he's, he's a known dude in the, the basketball world. And as a basketball fan, I'm eager to hear what he does in that world, what he's done in that world, and also how he's made that transition into uh, what he's doing now with corporate speaking. So, Alan, how are you, man? Fantastic. Really excited to be here, Grant. Thanks for uh, letting us hang out with you. So uh, first of all, let's start with this. Give us a little snapshot of your speaking business, and then we'll kind of dig into how you got to this point. Absolutely. I made the jump into the corporate space about a year ago, almost to the day, uh, really to show businesses and and CEOs and entrepreneurs that the, the principles of achievement in basketball are actually identical to the principles of achievement in business or really in any area of our life. And I have, as you mentioned, spent most of my life in a basketball bubble, and I'm really excited to break out of that and share these strategies and concepts and tools, you know, with with folks in the business world. Now, I see uh, people listening to the uh, podcast can't see this, but I see a lot of pictures behind you and on your website. I've seen a lot of pictures with a lot of known NBA athletes. So, give us a snapshot of what you did, or and even I don't know what do you do with basketball players. For sure. Yeah, the pictures behind me are, are some of the elite level players I've had a chance to meet. And most importantly, I've had a chance to see what they do during the unseen hours and really have figured that that's what makes them so elite. Certainly in the basketball space, you know, a guy like LeBron James or Kevin Durant was born with some genetic predispositions that maybe right. you and I weren't born with. Right. But that's not the only reason that they're successful. Uh, they've developed a, a series of habits and routines and mindsets and disciplines that they exercise. 24 hours a day, that's what ultimately makes them elite. And uh, I really started in the youth and high school space. I live right outside of Washington, D.C., and it's a very booming area for youth basketball. We've had some really good players come out of this area. And I was able to work at two different high schools 
And those two high schools in a dozen years produced about 15 NBA players like Kevin Durant, uh, Victor Oladipo, the recent number one pick, Markel Fultz. So I've had a chance to work with some really elite players and, and figured it was time that I took the things that I learned from them and the great coaches I'd been around and, again, spread that message beyond just the walls of the basketball gym. What was that role like? Where were you as a, as a trainer or as a coach? What would that kind of look like? So my title was performance coach, which most people understand is a strength and conditioning coach. So I, I did work on skills and I didn't do X's and O's or strategy. I help players improve their athleticism, reduce the occurrence and severity of injury, and, and you know help them run faster, jump higher, be more explosive on the court. So I was basically with the two high school programs I worked with, uh, deemed as an assistant coach with my specialty being on improving performance. And so how do you go from that role into working with some of the, the biggest names in NBA? Two high schools that I worked with, Montrose Christian School, which is where Kevin Durant went to high school, and DeMatha Catholic High School, where Victor Oladipo and Markel Fultz went, are two of Nike's elite programs. And, and Nike's obviously very big in the basketball community. Yeah. And that turned me on to some gigs with Nike, with Jordan Brand, with USA Basketball, which really opened up so many doors for me to meet some very influential coaches and work with and be around some influential players. So it really started at the grassroots level and then so many doors opened up. And then as you can appreciate, not too different than the speaking business, once you work with an elite level player or team or coach, it adds to your credibility yeah. and then other doors just start to open. And then it goes from me searching for gigs and workouts to people actually searching for me. And that's where I'm seeing so many parallels between what I did in basketball and what I'm now trying to do in the speaking world. Nice. So how did you go from then you're working with all these elite athletes and you're helping them with their game to transitioning to, were you speaking about basketball or speaking at basketball camps or how, when did the, the speaking piece start to come into play? You know, it initially started with just training, primarily one-on-one -on -one and small group training with players. Uh, but then as I started to, to refocus my lens, I realized that my main priority was actually to leave my thumbprint on youth basketball, to actually create a change in the way players were training. And I figured it'd be much wiser for me to scale and actually try to teach coaches how to effectively train their players. You know, if you're a basketball coach at your high school, you're responsible for roughly 30 kids, probably 15 on your JV team and 15 on your varsity team. Yeah. So instead of me training one player, if I could go to a clinic and speak to you and give you some best practices and tips and exercises, then you could actually influence 30 players. Sure. So I started speaking maybe 10 years ago on the basketball circuit and have been fortunate to travel the world and speak at some pretty good events to teach coaches how to train their players. And then I just got about a year ago to the point where I thought, you know, the intangibles of leadership and teamwork and building culture are really important to a team's performance. And I'm, I'm ready to break free and stop just talking to the basketball world about that because I know that that applies to business. So that's really kind of been the iteration of going from training players to training coaches how to train players, now to training businesses and CEOs and leaders how to apply the same principles to business. Nice. And I want to dig into that transition because I think that's a piece that a lot of people will resonate with who are speaking to one industry or known in one space and now want to start to build a, a castle in the new sandbox over here. How do you make that leap? How do you make that transition? So I'm curious, though, even going back, you said you've been speaking in the basketball world for 10 years or so. How did you get started speaking there? Because it's one thing to go from, you know, I'm coaching some athletes either on the high school or collegiate or, or professional level to now I'm speaking to coaches around the world. How did you start to build a, a speaking business in that space? You know, not too different than how I'm doing it now. I just started reaching out. I started reaching out to every clinic host and school and organization that put on events and proved to them that I could add value to their event. Now, where I was fairly fortunate was 
the basketball strength and conditioning and performance trend is not that old. In fact, when I graduated college in 1999, less than a third of NBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant at that point. And if you fast forward now to 2017, I mean, they have entire staffs devoted towards the performance department. So it's really grown. So when I first started reaching out, no basketball clinics were talking about performance or athleticism or injury reduction or anything. So I had the great fortune of being able to offer a special niche. All of the coaches that were speaking at their clinics were basketball coaches talking about basketball drills and drawing up plays. And I was able to say, look, I've got something different. And I really had nothing to lose. I said, look, if, if you give me a chance, I'll speak for free at your event. If you don't get good feedback or people don't like my content, I'll never contact you again. And the first couple of groups that allowed me to speak, the audience really resonated with what I was talking about. This was kind of a hot time for that topic and things went well. And then they started having me back and again, slowly started to escalate the number of events and and the level of events that I was able to speak. And I'm doing the exact same process now. I'm virtually unknown in the corporate space. I've never had a corporate job in my entire life. And now I'm, I'm trying to rebuild my brand and credibility in that new space And I'm doing it in a similar fashion, building it brick by brick, reaching out and proving my worth to the groups. And and, and I I expect a a similar result over time and with persistence and grit. You know, my my speaking business is already built up fairly significantly, but it's just getting started. Yeah. So even early on, and and it sounds like you're on the similar track now of just you're in some ways starting over, of you are doing a lot of free engagements and just ultimately hoping something comes out of it. So there are a lot of potential free engagements that you could do and hoping that something comes from it. So what are there any criteria that you're kind of looking at and you're kind of using to determine this free gig is more valuable to me than this free gig over here? What kind of lens are you looking through when determining those? Well, you nailed that. And coming from my basketball background, I'm a very process-oriented guy. And I understand that in order to be successful in anything, you have to get reps. And one of the reasons I was a fairly decent speaker in the basketball circuit was I got thousands of reps over a decade of speaking. So I feel comfortable in front of audiences. uh, But now that I'm in the corporate space and it's slightly different material and it's a different audience, I'm all about getting those reps again. So for the first four to six months, I was not very choosy in the free gigs that I would do. I just wanted to get speaking reps and I would speak anywhere and everywhere that that the audience wanted me. And now that my schedule's starting to get full and I'm actually getting paid for my gigs, then I'm a little more selective in those. Really, it comes down to, do I think it's going to be a a solid win-win? Is this an audience that I really believe that I can add value to? And then do I believe that this audience will be able to open doors and do things for me for future gigs? So I don't go in with any type of hidden agenda. I'm very open about that at the beginning is I'd love to add value to your event or to your company. But in exchange, if I do a good job, I would love for you to turn me on to your network or give me an endorsement for people that you think I'd be a good fit for. And and so far, that's worked out fairly well. And yeah, and, and anytime I get a chance to speak to a group, I appreciate the audience attention. So whether I'm getting paid a lot of money or I'm not getting paid a dime doesn't change my intent, doesn't change my performance, doesn't change my content. I'm going to bring my A game regardless. And that mindset's really helped me develop this rhythm. So how I want to talk for a second about the, you, you mentioned how important it was early on to have a lot of reps. And, and obviously that parallels well with what you do with athletes, that some of the greatest athletes in the world who have played basketball for their entire lives still go through the same drills that five, six, seven-year-olds are doing, just going through them over and over and over again. How important has that been for you to just speak a lot as a way to just get better? 
I mean, it's it's vital. It's the key to being successful. I, I believe as a speaker, you have your content and you have your delivery. And tremendous speakers like yourself combine both very, very well. You've been out there long enough that you've probably seen some speakers that have great content, but they don't present it in a very right. energetic, engaging way. And then you have others that could get you to run through a brick wall, but at the end of the day, you don't even take any notes because they haven't offered much substance. So I've always been trying to get reps to work on both sides. So I'm working and workshopping material. I'm going to go and speak to a group. And then as soon as I'm done, I'm evaluating myself on what things worked well, content wise, what things didn't. I always get feedback from the audience anytime I can, an anonymous feedback form. And then I'm also working on the delivery. And like anything, just like the players that I've worked with, I use coaches as well. I've used uh, Michael and Amy Port from Heroic Public Speaking Live to help me with my delivery. I've worked with writing coaches to help me polish up the content. So uh, while I feel that I have the raw materials to be a uh, successful speaker, I don't take that for granted. I want people helping me and coaching me. When I first got into this and, and still listen to this day, but your podcast has been invaluable in me uh, launching my business and, and getting started and you know, talking about getting reps. I mean, I would get reps of listening to every episode that you put out because that stuff, that's how you get better at anything. It all comes down to getting reps. And, and for me, that's, that's really been the key to, to this first year is getting quality reps. And as you know, there's a difference between getting a rep by yourself in your living room and getting a rep in front of a live audience. Once I felt I was ready to be in front of a live audience, uh, I try to get in front of as many as I can, as often as I can. Yeah, one of the things I always like to say is that that whenever you're working on a talk, you're preparing a talk, it's all an educated guess until you get in front of an audience. I think this story is going to work. I think this joke is funny, but you just don't know until you actually get in front of them. The other thing too is if you're speaking more frequently, you have more opportunities to iterate and to test that material. You may say something off the cuff that you're like, that was amazing. I need to make sure I use that next time. But if next time isn't for six months before you give the next talk, it's a lot more difficult to incorporate that, that those materials and make those iterations quicker versus if you're speaking, you know, every week or every couple of weeks or so. Have you found that to be the case for you? Oh, absolutely. That's the purposeful practice that we always talk about, especially in the basketball space. There's a huge difference between going to the gym by yourself and casually jacking up three or 400 shots versus playing a five on five game. So yes, the more specific the repetitions, the better. And you know, what's funny about what you just said, I'm a huge Louis CK fan. And Louis CK said something that was very powerful, even though it sounds very obvious. He said, if the audience doesn't laugh, then it's not funny. It doesn't matter if I think it's funny. It doesn't matter if my friends think it's funny. If the audience doesn't laugh, they're the judge and the jury, then it's not funny. And just like you said, uh, I might think a a piece of content or a story or an anecdote is on the money, but if it doesn't resonate with the people I'm trying to serve, then it's not. And, And then you can do two things. You can either throw it out or you can workshop it and try to figure out a way to massage it so that it could work. And if you do that two or three iterations worth and it's still not resonating, then it's probably not a great piece of content and you move on. But uh, like you said, that's how you learn. For me, what's worked really best, both for my my learning style and my presentation style is I create a series of of modules and bits, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I almost have an a la carte menu of the things that the stories and the takeaways and the life lessons. And then I make sure that I know each one of those very solid. And then I can pick and choose which ones I believe would be the best fit for an audience. And I can also rearrange the order. You know, I have a story about meeting and watching Kobe Bryant work out for the first time. I used to lead with that. And then I found it actually works better about a third of the way into my talk. It becomes more powerful. And I only learned that through trial and error. So you have to be willing, as you know, to try different things, to be vulnerable, to take a risk. 
and then have the self-evaluation and reflection to be able to make tweaks when needed. And again, there's, it seems like there's a lot of parallels to what you've done with athletes that the best athletes in the world, it's easy to think like, wow, they get paid millions of dollars because like you said, they have some physical gift that I just wasn't born with and they are incredibly athletically talented. But the reality is, is while some of that may be true, the other part of it is that they have spent hours and hours and hours and hours in, a, in gyms, oftentimes, you know, by themselves or just with a coach and just doing like very non-glamorous, non-sexy stuff. And so that it's nice whenever you see some speaker who's speaking to, you know, an audience of, of 5,000 or 10,000, like, well, I, I could do that. But you don't see the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other presentations that they've given, many that may have gone well, many that may have not gone well, and that they have bombed and they sucked and that joke didn't work and nobody laughed and it wasn't funny. But those reps make them better better and make them more prepared for those opportunities when the big stage opportunities may come. Absolutely. And, and everything is earned. You know, you don't accidentally end up in front of an audience of 5,000 people on stage. That yeah. doesn't happen by accident. That doesn't happen by luck. You know, hope is not a strategy. Right. Uh, that happens because you've put in the work. Now, do some people occasionally get a break maybe a little earlier than someone else? Yeah, that's life. I tell my kids all the time. I have three young kids. Anytime they say, you know, daddy, that's not fair. Yeah, I know. Life's not fair. I don't know who told you it's supposed to be fair. There's nothing fair about it. Yeah. But if you are consistent in your preparation, you take your craft very seriously, you're willing to do anything and everything you can to become the best speaker possible, all of a sudden doors start opening and opportunities start arising. So that's, and again, that's something I, I knew intuitively through my basketball work, but also, I mean, that's, that's one of the main themes of your podcast. When I started listening, you know, initially to get into this, it was all about earning your right to be successful. Yeah. So, all right, let's talk about that transition then. So you are speaking in the basketball space. You're known as a, as a basketball guy for, sounds like, a, a decade or so. At what point did you decide, you know what, this is good, this is fun, but I'm interested in, in trying something different? Like, it sounds like, and again, looking at the pictures, that you're at the top of the game. So why change? Why try to go to a different arena? It happened for a few reasons. One, it was literally a year ago last summer. So it was August of 2016. And I was actually doing an international tour. I was in Germany. I was in Belgium. This was speaking for basketball. And something in my gut was just, I just wasn't excited to speak as I had been a few years before. And here I am at a different country in a different culture, a captive audience of coaches. And I just didn't have the fire that I normally had. And something in my heart said, you know what? You owe it to the audience to be all in. So I had to do some serious reflection after that. Coincidentally or not coincidentally, a few weeks later, a friend of mine, they were having a, a fitness retreat for 200 fitness professionals, and they had a leadership speaker lined up who bailed at the last minute. And he said, Alan, would you like to speak on leadership? And I thought, sure, I've never done that before. That sounds kind of cool. It was a free trip to Cancun, so why not? And I went and spoke. And I felt electrified. It was intoxicating being on that stage. And even though I was talking about most of the same type of stuff I'd been talking about, as soon as I had a new audience and put a different spin on it, it just reinvigorated me. And those two things happening back to back is what got me to say, you know what, it might be time to move on and spread this message to a new audience. And that was really what, what started the trend. And it took a little while to phase out of doing some of the basketball. It's not like I just, you know, turned in my time card and said, I'm done. Uh, I just decided that I'm going to start looking into this. And then I started doing some other gigs for some friends just to test the waters and realize this was where my heart lied and this is where my passion was at present. And this all happened literally a year ago, September of, of last year. So how do you figure out then of going from, all right, I'm known in this 
basically niche market. I'm well known in this niche market of speaking to basketball professionals and coaches and athletes to going to, I have this skill set that's kind of a random, unique type of skill set. How do you even begin to determine who you could speak to? Because it's the type of thing where there's probably a lot of types of audiences that would be fascinated with some of the stories that you tell, some of the leadership principles you could share. So how do you go from, I'm this known thing over here in this unique niche market to figuring out where you want to go because there's so many different options. What did that process look like? I'm a relationship guy and I know I'm dating myself now, but I consider my Rolodex to be very thorough. I don't know what we call it now, but yeah. uh, spreadsheet or my, my <laughs> right. contact list, but I'm a relationship guy. And, and I had two or three fairly close friends and mentors that were in the business space. So the first thing I did was sit down with them and say, look, I need to you to give it to me raw and give it to me real. Here are the types of things that I believe that, that I could talk about and use to add value in the business world. Not as my friend, not as my mentor, but strictly as a business colleague. Is this something that you think there's a market for and could I add value in this space? And I sat down with them for a couple of weeks on end and they helped kind of carve my message. And they all emphatically supported the fact that they felt this message would resonate well in that community. And then I went back to my Rolodex, anyone in the basketball community and said, hey guys, I've been serving you for a decade. Now I need an assist from you. If you know anyone in the corporate space that might want to hear this message, can you help me out? And it was amazing how many people came out of the woodwork. You know, uh, you might be a high school coach down in Mississippi, but your wife runs HR for a company and they're looking for a speaker. So even though I was in a very niche market, uh, that web spread very quickly once I put the word out. And, And I did so as a way of service. It wasn't, hey, everybody, gimme, gimme, gimme. It was uh, is there anyone that you know of that you believe I could add value to as I as I enter this new area and this new arena? And that's what jump started everything. And then, as you can appreciate, as a speaker, you live off of referrals. You live off of you know when you speak at a conference, uh, having folks come up afterwards and say that really resonated. We'd love to bring you in. So the basketball community was kind enough to give me my jump start, and then I've been able to spin it from there. Nice. I like it. So then one of the things that you, you'd mentioned that was beginning to reach out to your existing network. Now it's a network you've built over a decade and, uh, you know, again, in a different market, but I assume it would be similar for someone who I'm just going to reach out to all my friends, family, colleagues, anyone that I've ever come across or met. I'm posting it on Facebook. I'm just, I'm putting out the word that I'm a speaker. Here's what I do. Here's who I speak to. Here's the problem that ultimately I can solve. So it sounds like for you, just doing that started to open those doors and started to give you some some more opportunities and some more reps. Absolutely. You hit it on the head. And I know a lot of people that feels, it feels boastful. It feels almost as if you're tooting your own horn. But uh, again, as a private trainer in the basketball world, you know, self-promotion is, is how I got business. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a commission business, no different than speaking. So I've never had a problem with, as you just mentioned so brilliantly, putting out in the world my intention and putting out what it is that I'm aiming to do. And, you know, uh, I'm very quick to try and help and assist and serve others. So I don't feel bad when I lean on my network to, to hop, you know, hopefully give me a hand and to help me. And it's the neat part was people did so, so graciously. I mean, I'm, I'm forever thankful for the people that said, you know what? Yeah, you'd be perfect for this. Let me talk to my wife or my brother-in-law does this or, right. and, and people that would just make connections. And, you know, they thought, hey, Alan is served me in the basketball space very, very well. Now let me do him a solid and help him back. And and I say that with tremendous respect and grace and appreciation and gratitude for the folks that did that. That's really what got things to, to jump off. Yeah, one of the things I've always found to be true, especially in speaking, is that you have no idea who's in the audience. 
at any given time, any given talk. You know, I remember some early breaks that I got were were speaking at some random tiny little event. But the, you know, uh, I remember one time the wife of the executive, this national executive director, happened to be in the audience for this tiny little conference. I remember an event I did where this girl's uh, grandpa ran some big national organization and she's texting him during the event like you need to have this guy come and just like those type of like you mentioned the random things if you have no idea who's connected to who and, and but they don't know to think of you unless you connect the dots for them so and it sounds like as you are putting out the vibe and letting people know like hey here's who I am this is what I do here's a problem that I can solve again you're coming from it for, you're coming at it from a place of service and it's not I'm the world's greatest speaker you're dumb if you don't hire me but no no, no I, I'm here to serve here's how I can help your audience here's what I can do and again it's coming from a place of just genuinely wanting to help people so it's not like the sales pitch it's more right. of here's how I can serve here's how I can help Absolutely, man. You said that perfectly. That's, that's my feeling completely. And, and you really hit it on the head with you never know who's in the audience. And you bring your A game no matter what. Sure. Whether you're getting paid or you're doing it for free, whether you're speaking to five or 500 or 5,000, you give them everything you have. Because in today's day and age, I think we can all appreciate that time's our most valuable resource. And if time's our most valuable resource, then our attention is our number one currency. And anytime someone's willing to invest their attention into me, whether they're watching a video or listening to one of my podcasts or they're in the audience, uh, you know, that's very sacred. And I really appreciate that because they could be putting their attention in a million different things right. and they deserve it from me to give my best. Yeah, for sure. How have you uh, gone from, okay, I want to speak to businesses. I want to speak to corporations and I talk about leadership, which again, those are big audiences. Those are big markets and that's a big topic and it's very competitive. So is there anything that you've done to try to either niche down further from that or to differentiate yourself from the thousands of other leadership speakers that are out there? Most of what I do is built on the habits that you need during the unseen hours to be successful. So it is a rather general topic, but I spoke, I focus specifically on uh, the skill sets needed to build these habits. And then umbrellas underneath that are pillars of leadership and teamwork and team culture. But my, my number one calling card is what you as the, the business owner need to do. And what more importantly, what all of your people need to do to maximize their time, to maximize their effort, to be more efficient, to be more productive and master those unseen hours. And again, so that I'm not completely pigeonholed into the basketball space, I certainly give some stories about LeBron and KD and Kobe and those guys, uh, but I also pull from real life scenarios. And again, as a father, as a business owner, you know, uh, I understand that these are my peers that I'm speaking to, the, the trials and tribulations that they have between creating a work-life balance and traveling and all. Yeah. I understand these things too. So I really try to relate to the audience on a personal level, give them tips and best practices that have worked well for me in my life, share with them the landmines that I've stepped on that didn't work so well, and then tell them exactly what the world's highest achievers and highest performers do on a regular basis. And that's kind of my overarching theme. I like it. What have you done to make sure you're not like long-term forever pigeonholed as the basketball guy? Because this is something that, that you've got, I mean, that's the bulk of your experience. That's the bulk of the world that you're, you're known in. You want to transition to a new world. And in some ways, the, like you mentioned, the stories about LeBron, the stories about Katie, the stories about Kobe, like those are all great stories that, that for a lot of audiences, whether they're a basketball fan or not, they recognize those names. They're like, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to hear that story, you know? So how do you find that balance between, I don't want to be forever known as this one guy over here, but at the same time, that does give me at least a little bit of credibility when I'm speaking to this brand new audience in this new way. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love, you're, you're always one step ahead of me and you ask such great questions. This is phenomenal. I use 
those basketball names and that credibility to get me in. And now that I'm in, I'm able to have stories and experiences with Gary Vaynerchuk, with Mark Cuban, with Sarah Blakely, the owner of Spanx. So uh, I'm able now to start slowly adding to my arsenal stories about businesses, highest performers and highest achievers. But I've used basketball as kind of the segue to get in there. So now where when I first started a year ago, it was 100% basketball stories and 0% business stories. Now we're getting closer to 50-50 because I have those other experiences. And again, if you're in the business world, you know, a Mark Cuban or a Gary Vaynerchuk or a Sarah Blakely, I mean, those are the LeBron James of business. Now they're enjoying hearing those stories. And then, of course, for myself, using on my own experience of being an entrepreneur my entire career, an entrepreneur in basketball, but now an entrepreneur in speaking and and using my own experiences as well and and try to put together the perfect storm. And of course, it will depend on the audience. You know, I, I spoke to a group of physicians the other day and, you know, to speak very generically, many physicians don't come from an athletic background. They're highly academic. Yeah. So I knew that they wouldn't gravitate towards the sports stories as yeah. much as made a different audience. So I tweaked it. The week before, I spoke to a sports agency that represents about a quarter of the NBA. So I told all basketball stories and they ate it up. So I also want to make sure that I'm nimble enough to cater to my audience and serve them, give them what it is that they need. Because as you know, as a speaker, it's not about me. It's about them. Right. For sure. So let's talk about this. Then you're about a year into this transition now. Is there anything looking back that you would have done differently or anything that would have helped make the transitions? I mean, it sounds like, again, outside looking in, it sounds like the transition has been relatively smooth, but anything that you would do differently or that you would go back and change? You know, from the moving to the corporate speaking, no, there's probably not a whole lot that I would do different. Obviously, hindsight being 2020, I mean, I've made a litany of mistakes in the past year, but I recognize that they're part of the process and part of of growing and developing. Now, if I could go back to my early 20s and change some things that I did from a basketball standpoint, yeah, there's a million different things I probably would have done different. But the good part is the way that I'm doing this, I'm kind of having my do over now. I'm getting to use everything I learned for 15 years in basketball and building that business. And I'm able to use that learning curve into this. And I mean, the first year of the corporate speaking, it took me about six or seven years to accomplish the same thing in basketball. So I'm, I'm thankful that I was able to learn from some of those mistakes. But no, this first year has gone well. Uh, I'm just glad that I've finally adopted patience. I've never been a very patient person. I'm extremely type A. I'm very driven. But I went into this knowing, Alan, it's going to take several years before you're a well-known speaker and you have to enjoy that process. And if something happens before then, be thankful. But this was something that I knew getting into it, it would take three to five years before I was kind of known on the speaking circuit. So to have only one year under my belt, I feel good about where I am. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And I, and I hope people caught that, that, that speaking is very much a momentum business and speaking is very much a, a long, it's a long distance journey here. It's not a, it's very much a marathon. It's not a sprint and it just takes time. You know, the, the more reps you have, the quicker you start to build some type of reputation and message and, and figuring some of those pieces out, but it just takes time. You know, I mean, if you bust your butt today to book gigs, they're probably going to be six months, nine months, maybe a year out. So yeah. it may, it just takes a while just to build some of that momentum there. So, uh, and again, it sounds like the exact same thing that happened with basketball that, you know, you're, you're starting at a, at a high school level, you know, that leads to one thing and that opens another door and it just takes time. You don't, you don't become this, this, you know, big basketball coach or, or, or big professional keynote speaker overnight. It just takes a lot of time to make that happen. 
It does. And one thing that, that really helps me keep everything in perspective and keeps me motivated, inspired is, well, first of all, I love stand up comedy. So yeah. like I said, I'm a Louis C.K. fan. But I mean, if you look at Louis C.K.'s journey, I mean, yeah, he's the guy right now. I mean, his Netflix specials are gold. They produce any episode of any show that he wanted to do. But he's been doing this for close to 25, 30 years. Yeah. You can easily go on YouTube and find some of his stuff from the early 90s. I mean, he's earned that. You know, yeah. Kevin Hart's another one. You know, it took him almost 20 years to break into Hollywood. Now, again, he's arrived now, but it's not like that happened last night. And, you know, The Rock or Dwayne Johnson, there's so many examples of guys that have achieved a super level of success in their industry now, but we just quickly glance over the 20 years that it took him to get there. So in all reality, if I were to become a rather well-known speaker in three to five years, that's even lightning quick. I should probably have some more patience than that. But I, I constantly read and study those types of stories because it helps me put things in perspective and go, okay, Alan, you just knocked one year off of what could be another 10 to 15 year journey and, and appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. And as you've kind of alluded to of, of the number of different athletes and professional, you know, musicians and artists and comedians and actors and performing all these different things that none of them got there overnight, that oftentimes it is the non-glamorous, non-sexy, tedious, monotonous, boring work that just nobody sees. And uh, I mean, it sounds like a, a topic you should uh, you should consider speaking on there. Hey, you know, I just I don't know if you've seen it recently on Netflix. I watched Jerry Seinfeld's yeah, new. I saw it. It's great. Which the funny part is, I mean, his his first act was in that same club yep. in 1976, which was the year I was born. Now I'm 41. It's not like I'm 18. Right. So he's been he's been doing this for 40 years. Right. That's an entire lifetime for myself. So yes, we have to respect the journey. We have to respect the process. But the reason that I'm cool with that is, as you can also appreciate, there's a lot of attrition. There's a lot of impatient people that aren't willing to put in that type of work. So they start dropping out. And when they start dropping out, it makes your path and my path, uh, there's a little less resistance. Yep. Now, uh, as a sports fan and for fellow sports fans, I can't let you go without hearing a story. So uh, give us give us something. You, you, you've teased a few of them here. So give us, uh, give us your best one of, of some interaction or some working with some, uh, some big NBA player. My favorite one was in 2007. Nike flew me to Los Angeles to work the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. And for any of your listeners that aren't diehard basketball folks, in 2007, I mean, Kobe was the best player in the world. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jordan had already retired twice at that point, And LeBron was great, but he wasn't the LeBron that we know now. So yeah. Kobe was that. Now, I had been in a basketball bubble my whole life, and I had heard urban legend of how insanely intense his individual workouts were. And since I was on the camp staff, I asked him if I could watch one. And he said, sure, man, no problem. I'm going tomorrow at four. And I was a little confused. I said, Kobe, we have a camp workout tomorrow at 3.30. He said, no, I'm going at 4 a.m. Well, obviously, there's not a, an excuse in the world on why I can't be somewhere at four in the morning. So I basically committed myself to being there. And I figured if I was going to be there anyway, I might as well try and impress Kobe and show him how serious of a trainer I was. So I planned to beat him to the gym. So I set my alarm for 3 a.m., got up quickly, hopped in a cab, and got to the gym. And I got there about 3.30 and the gym lights were already on, and I can already hear a ball bouncing and sneakers squeaking. And I walk in the side door, and he's already in a full sweat. He was going through an intense warm-up before his scheduled workout started at four with his trainer. And then I didn't say anything to him, and I didn't say anything to his trainer because I didn't want to interrupt them. I was just thankful to be there. Yeah. And, and honestly, Grant, for the first 45 minutes, I was bored out of my mind because for the first 45 minutes, I watched the best player in the world do the most basic footwork and offensive moves. As you alluded to earlier in our right. chat, he was doing stuff that I'd regularly done with middle school players. Right. Uh, now he did it with razor sharp precision and he did it with unparalleled work ethic. 
but it was very basic. Now the whole workout lasted about two hours. And when it was over, I didn't say anything to him or his trainer. I just left. Uh, but my young curiosity got the best of me later that day. I had to know. So I went up to him and said, Kobe, you know, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And he kind of laughed and said, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Cause I never get bored with the basics. And, and that really is a great summary of everything you and I were talking about. If the best player in the world can commit to doing the basics every single day, then we as speakers need to be able to do the same thing. And really the, what he taught me was that just because something is basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Those are not synonyms. And, and people think that, but if it was easy, everyone else would be doing it, right. but they don't because our society wants us to skip steps. They want us to chase the outcome. They want us to chase what's hot and flashy and sexy and ignore the basics. And again, to draw that back to the speaking world, everyone wants to be on a stage in front of 5,000 people. No one wants to do the dirty work for years and years and years that it takes to earn that right. And that's, again, an example of something that happens during the unseen hours and why I'm so committed to doing those things so that in three to five years, I will have earned the right to be in front of 5,000 people. Beautiful. Great story and extremely well told and well shared. So, uh, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through your journey and story. If people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where can we go? My website is alansteinjr.com and I'm at alansteinjr on all social handles. And I, I'd love to engage and, and, and chat with any of your listeners and really appreciate the chance to speak with you, my friend. You're doing great work. Uh, you've been very influential for me and my start, and I really appreciate you. Cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to share that story and journey with us. And I look forward to uh, catching up with you again in the future. Cool. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alan Stein Jr. Good stuff there at the end. Wasn't that a cool story? Crazy story. And you know what I, I, I love so much about Alan's story is, again, the, the analogies and the parallels that we, we see there with how hard the greatest athletes in the world, how hard they work behind the scenes when nobody is paying attention, when nobody's watching. And it's the same thing is true with speakers. The best speakers on the planet, those that are oftentimes the most successful are those that are putting in the reps, that are putting in the work when no one is paying attention, when no one is watching. That's ultimately what it takes to be successful as a speaker. You have to be willing to continually reach out to clients, to continually network with op potential opportunities and event planners, to continually connect with other speakers, to continually take action in your speaking business. So if you would do one thing for me, that would be to take action. Take what you've learned here. Don't just listen to it, but actually implement it, apply it, do something with what we've covered and talked about today. All right. Hey, again, if you want to check out Alan's stuff, stop by Alan Stein, S-T-E-I. I N junior.com, Alan Stein, junior.com and uh, check out what he's up to there. All right, my friends, we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.